Good to see you. Uh, greetings from Liverpool. Been to Liverpool this week. I still have my hubcaps. That's the good news. Uh, I went to Liverpool along with a man called Ben Clark, who's the pastor of out- outreach from Chesington Evangelical Church. We went to be part of an Acts 29 conference. It was absolutely thrilling and really worthwhile to go. Um, it's great to hear what God is doing around his world, and especially in Europe. So we met friends from Denmark, church planters from Denmark, from Northern Ireland, Scotland, uh, Portugal, uh, Paris, Turkey, I was going to say that now, and one man in particular from Turkey (laughs) called Karem Huck. Karem is pastor of a church in Alitalia, Turkey. He told an incredibly moving story that brought him to tears. He uh, told the story of, uh, in light of the Syrian refugee crisis, we've seen that on our TV, yeah, it's far away, uh, at least 100, if not 150,000, if not more people um, have been uh, forced to move out of their homes. This doesn't really affect us, but it's affected Karem and his church in Turkey. So Karem tells the story how 25,000 Syrian refugees have entered his town. And how, as a church, they're trying to respond to that in a loving, careful, Christian way. Uh, Every day, there is about 1,500 men who come to the town square of Karem's town because they're looking for work. So uh, there's a a, a load of people from construction sites who come in with lorries and take them away. They don't pay them any money, but they do give them food. At least the workers hope they'll get food for their day's labor. And he described with tears how there are so many adults and children who wear shorts, and that's all the clothes they've got. Uh, And it's just a huge need. So we took an offering, and thought, how do you respond to this? We took an offering um, for for Karem and and for the church there in Alitalia, Turkey, because they're looking to provide for £10, they can get a sleeping bag and a roll mat um, to go underneath. So it was a really moving time. Um, but also a greatly encouraging time of how one church in particular, facing a particular need, is trying to respond in a biblical way. That's Karem uh, Huck. If you want to know anything more about him, or if you want to support him um, financially, then please let me know. We need to do that carefully, but uh, we, I, I know him. I've known him for a couple of years, and he's a good, godly man. Um, and also heard something of, of what's happened in Paris from a man called Philip Moore. He's just to the, to the east of Paris. There's been a huge kind of conurbation that's developed around Euro Disney. So he works alongside another two friend of ours, uh, Jason Procopio, who some of you may have heard him speak at Chesington before. He describes how um, he was safe last weekend, but how a number of uh, people from his congregation and community were actually very, very close, heard gunfire, uh, were kept safe in God's goodness. But it was a really helpful reminder of just the global nature of the church. As uh, Dave said, here we are, 40, 50 folk. Um, all those things in Syria and Paris, it's at least a plane ride away, if not a million miles away. But uh, God has his people there. And we need to prayerfully support them, um, perhaps in other ways as well. Um, let me pray, and then we'll kick off. Father, thank you that you are the God of the whole globe. This is our Father's world, says the old hymn, and that's a great comfort to us. Please, would you build your church? Please, would you use this uh, terrible situation in Syria and the uh, movement of people in some way to build your church and to enable the church to respond 
not just theoretically, but in a concrete, manifest way, as you would have done, and as the Lord Jesus did, to the poor and the sick, to the marginalised, when he got dust between his toes and walked the earth. Uh, please help us to listen now to your voice. Uh, please help me to speak faithfully. But we pray that we would not just hear, but we'd also think about doing what your word impresses to our hearts. Amen. Uh, one of the things about studying in Bible college in America, and I think this is a good thing, is that American friends then come to England. And when American friends come to England, they want to be shown around. So uh, Joe and I became very adept tour guides. We didn't have an umbrella, but uh, for the last few years, American friends have come to our house in Crawley predominantly, and then we end up doing a journey, and we always do the same thing. So we get on the train, and we go up to London Bridge. Then we get off the train at London Bridge, and we go for some focaccia bread at uh, Borough Market, because it's the best bread in the world, of course. Then we go to the South Bank. We go to the Globe, across the Wobbly Bridge, St. Paul's, feed the birds, tap into the bag. And then we get on the tube and go to Trafalgar Square, see what few pigeons there are now. Um, we go into the National Portrait Gallery. And then we do the bit that all Americans want to do, which is go up the mall. So two years ago, there we were. We were going up the mall, and they were saying, man, this is really neat, this is cool, and all that stuff, which means it's good. Um, we went up the mall, and it's just noticeable to us that there were more people than normal. It's always busy, but this is really busy. There was more police. There's always police, but there were loads of them. And we got closer and closer. We thought, this is a bit different. And then we got up to uh, the roundabout in front of Buckingham Palace. And then we got up to the gates. And we kind of got, uh, got through. And there was a notice there. There was a notice there uh, on a trestle kind of uh, structure, an A-frame, surrounded by gold filigree leaf. And there was an announcement on there. Because a baby had been born. George had come into the world. I hadn't seen any pictures of him at that time, but little Georgie Porgy, the future king of England, had been born, and his picture was beamed around the globe, but it began, the public declaration was through a town crier. Do you remember that scene outside Buckingham Palace, where the town crier came out and said, hear ye, hear ye, and then the news was sent to the world through electronic means and video cameras and whatnot. This is a very interesting and well-known passage from Luke's Gospel that tells of a coming baby who is not just a normal baby, he's going to be the coming king. The coming king for a new kingdom. And that's what Luke wants us to hear as we've read these verses. We don't have time to look at the whole passage, I'm afraid. I'm going to focus in on verses 26 to 38. But Luke is so deliberate about what he includes it's because, as we saw last week, verse 2 of chapter 1, he has spoken to eyewitnesses who saw this stuff happen. They were still around, they were still breathing, they were still living, and he went and interviewed them into his 2,000-year-ago dictaphone and wrote down what they saw. It's a historical book, and from this kind of highfalutin, uh, carefully crafted first four sentences of Luke's gospel that is so different in the original language to the rest of the book. In, um, in verse 5, we get a date stamp. It's a date stamp so we can look at it historically and say, aha, there was a man called Herod. He was a really nasty piece of work. But Luke is trying to say this. This is truth. It's truth about a man and it's truth for our hearts. That was last week. 
And now he's saying this is actually truth in history. It's there because he's put a date stamp, verse 5, and into verse 6 as well. And in this passage, you've got the tale of two couples. The tale of two couples. Look at what uh, and how uh, Luke has crafted this so carefully together. You've got to, as it were, a zoom in. There's a bit in the film Men in Black at the beginning and at the end of the uh, film where you start off some in, in a different cosmos and then you zoom into our cosmos and then you zoom past the planets and then you come to the third rock from the sun and you pass the moon and then you zoom into the clouds and then you zoom into America because the whole world is focused on America, of course. Um, and then you zoom into a specific place. That's just what Luke is doing here. Luke is saying here's the center of the world. Here is the center of history, and here are two insignificant characters. Their names are Elizabeth and Zechariah. These are the most important people in the world at this time. It's not the king, it's not the emperor. It's these two minnows of people called Elizabeth and Zechariah. It's the first of two couples. The second, obviously, is Mary and Joseph. Joseph we haven't quite met yet. But notice the similarities in this passage, just as an overview. You've got the story of two couples. By story, I don't mean it's not true. I just mean it's the story that Luke has told. You've got two couples who, because of age and virginity, are not going to have children unless God interacts in the most amazing way. There are two encounters with Gabriel. He's the same angel. There are twice, we're told, and this is hard to do, but don't fear when you see an angel. Um, And twice, we're told, the name of the baby, and there are other similarities as well, but for all the similarities that you can see, perhaps do it with a cup of coffee this afternoon, as you put these two stories side by side, there is a huge difference that Luke wants us to see. Everything about the first account is superseded by the second. Everything that happens in the first story gets even greater in the second one. John is the forerunner. It's all about Jesus, though. And so there's a pattern and an intentionality about what Luke has put together. For all the similarities, there's uniqueness to the second story, the story that begins in verse 26. And we have a message here in verse 26, a message from an angelic being, a person called Gabriel. He speaks three times, verse 28, verse 30, verse 35. Mary responds three times. And what's the message that Gabriel has for Mary? What's the message? The message is the Most High, well, the Most High is going to become the Most Low. That's the message. It's about the incarnation. It's that the the personal force, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the three people of the Trinity... They have become so low and presence themselves in one person. God is becoming near in the person of Jesus Christ. There's been a plan that's been formed before the creation of the world that God the Father has planned and God the Son has said, yes, I'll do that in the power and dependency upon the third person of the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit. It's the most high becoming the most low. It's the message of the incarnation to probably a 15-year-old girl whose name is Mary. This is the message. And it's the message, verse 30, as we slow down. Point number one. 
It's the message of the greatest gift. It's the message of the greatest gift. Now you go to the marketplace today, which is the internet, and many people will dispute the incarnation. They dispute it for different reasons. If you're a humanist, if you're a humanist, you would say there's no way that God could become low. There's no way that the most high would become the most low. There's no way that God would become man. That's impossible. If you're a humanist, they they want to resist this doctrine of the incarnation, of God becoming man, because it makes Jesus Christ too central. They want to dismiss it out of hand. They want to dismiss the reality that Jesus Christ became human flesh. If you uh, are Judaistic, or if you're a Muslim, you want to dismiss this for another reason. You want to dismiss the incarnation because there is no way that God, that Allah, is so great, it's impossible that he could become so small. So they dismiss it for a different reason than the humanist. But in this passage, Luke is saying that what makes God so great, that what, what makes him so high, is that he was able to become most low. That's one of the things that makes God so great, the great condescension, the great coming down, the journey from heaven to earth. It doesn't diminish his greatness. It actually makes us understand his greatness. It's there in verse 32. It's there that Mary's struggling to understand what she's being told, that God God is greater than she ever thought, than she ever understood. It's the first thing that Gabriel says to her. He will be great and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. He's going to be greater than John the Baptist. John the, John the Baptist, he's the forerunner. But, but Jesus, he's, he's the most high. He, he's going to rule forever. He's going to be a king. By the way, all of the early chapters of Luke are shaped, it's my conviction, so they're just like the first few chapters of Samuel. Because just like Samuel tells us the story of the first king, so too here... If we know our Old Testament, Luke is saying, guess who Jesus Christ is? He's not a king, he's the king. He's the eternal king. There's so many similarities. That's for another person and another sermon. But Mary's here in verse 32, and she's saying, and wrestling in her mind, what is going on? And what's going on is this. Mary, you thought God was great. He's greater than you think. You've got no idea how great he is. He's greater than you think. You and I know, don't we, instinctively from kind of test tubes and pouring water and and things like that back in our secondary school days that we can define what someone who's greater is. The greater, by definition, can always come into the lesser. When you're pouring water in, if you've got too much, you can pour it into a little container. And the lesser is lesser because because it can't enter into the greater. Because the great is full. But Gabriel was saying that God and his greatness has become less. God has poured himself in completely in the person of Jesus Christ into this baby. This is the most high and he's going to be coming into a virgin's womb. It's the greatest gift, Christmas. It tells us about the greatness of God. The most high has become the most low. But it also tells us about the sinfulness of of mankind, the sinfulness of mankind. It's a, it's a message about our own need. I can remember the Christmas when I was 13 years old. 
can't remember what we ate, but I remember the gifts that I received. You know, when you're 13 years old, different things start to happen to your body. Let me tell you about the gifts that I received. The first gift that I opened up was a manicure set. It was in a brown leather pouch. I can see it clear as day. And it had nail clippers in it. It had comb. It had some other things for clearing out the gunk under your nails. That was my first gift. I thought, what do I want that for? (laughs) I opened my second gift from my brother. It was a bar of soap. And the third gift, I think this is true. If not, it's preacher's license. I think it was deodorant. Now look, gifts tell you something. There I was as a 13-year-old boy, and I think I got the message. Your body's changing for the sake of yourself, but most importantly for everybody else. Get your ducks in a row and start looking after your personal hygiene. Here is the greatest gift the world has ever received. It tells us about the greatness of God, the most high has become the most low. But it also tells us about our great need. Dave said it very helpfully to the children, didn't he? What is Jesus' name? Jesus' name, verse 31, you will bear him a son, you'll bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, because he will save a people from their sins. This gift, the greatest gift the world has ever seen, the greatest gift the world will ever receive, is the most high becoming the most low. Tells us about the greatness of God, but also our own need. Gifts tell you about your need. I needed to get clean. I needed to look after my health for the sake of myself and most importantly my family. But in this wonderfully familiar story that we just cosify every Christmas, it tells us about our great need. We are a people who don't need help. We're a people that don't just need clearing up or cleaning up. We're a people who need saving. That's the message of the gospel, isn't it? We need saving. That's what Christmas is all about. God becoming low because we need a saviour. He's a king who comes to save us, not just to rule remotely. He's a king who's come and got his hands dirty because we cannot save ourselves. He's greater than you think, Mary, but also we're more sinful than we think. That's why we need a saviour. God emptied himself of all his power. He emptied himself and became nothing. The gospel tells us that actually he emptied his own blood from his veins because we needed a saviour. It's the greatest gift the world has ever received. But it's also the greater need than we can ever understand ourselves. And it's all in this little baby. And what does Mary do with this greatest gift? Well, it's the greatest gift, but secondly, it's the gift received. We're going to spend most of our time here. Look at what Mary does. Look at verse 29. Here comes Gabriel. And what does Mary do? How does Mary respond to seeing an angel of light, a divine messenger, right up close and personal? Look at verse 29. It's often translated in this way. The angel says, greetings. I always want to put a Scouse accent on that, but I won't. The angel appears and says, greetings. The angel says, hi. And then he says, don't fear which I've always struggled with, and I think it's almost a bit of comedy here, because here comes an angel of light before Mary, this teenager, and says hi. It's kind of comical. Literally, and I think more helpfully, to do Mary justice is better translated in this way. 
She, she's reckoning. She's working out. I think the ESV is more helpful. She was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting that might be. She might be young, but in fact she's very mature. She's very mature. And she's thinking, what is going on? The, the, the Greek word literally means to account for, to reckon, to figure out, to think. Mary is thinking and trying to make sense of what is going on with the message that the angel was bringing to her of the greatest gift. What's going on? And I think it's important to think about this for a moment, that both religious and irreligious people as well, we are tempted to think that actually if you want to engage with God, you need to turn off your brain. What do I mean? Irreligious people say, well actually, I'd love to believe in a personal God, but when I come to church, I need to switch off my brain and just believe. I'm a rational person, but I know that if I come into Epsom Primary School, I need to switch off my brain and believe. And I think as we journey through Luke, that's going to be evidently clear. That's not what you do. That's not how Christians behave. That's not how Mary behaved. But religious people as well, some Christian people can think in this way. Actually, to really know God, to really know God is not just reading the Bible and praying. To really know God, you need to go mystical. To really know God, you need to go super spiritual. This is okay, but actually there's a Premier League of Christianity where you stop thinking and you just indulge your emotions. Both of them are very unhelpful. What's Mary doing here? She doesn't sit on her backside and say, wow, an angel. She reacts in the way that you and I would or should. What do I mean? This is not theoretical for Mary. It's not just purely experience either. It's not an emotional feeling by itself. It's an emotional feeling that's rooted in truth. She's wrestling, she's thinking, she's trying to say what is being said here. She's thinking rationally. It's rooted in truth. Christian truth is always rooted in the emotions. It always affects the will and that is what it means to know God. It's not pie in the sky. It's not cerebral truth by itself. Christian truth, knowing God, is based on the Bible, but it's also related to the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit, so our emotions must be engaged as well. We've always got to be careful to keep both of these together, our emotions and our wills, but also our minds. And here's Mary doing both things. Verse 29, thinking rationally, what's going on here? She's not turning off her brain and just experiencing God. Whatever that means, she's thinking. She's thinking and engaging with how God has chosen to reveal himself to her. That's verse 29. It's rational thinking to receive the gift. Verse 34. There's sincerity as well. Mary says, how will this be since I'm a virgin? She starts off by saying to God, I don't understand. I don't understand what's going on. What Mary is doing is talking. She's processing. She's praying, you could almost say. She's thinking, I don't understand what's going on, but rather than just moving on, I'm going to engage Gabriel with you and say, help me to understand. She's thinking rationally, but also sincerely. You can be here this morning. You may have given Christianity a go in the past. You may be here as a guest of a friend or someone said, please come. 
It's great to see you if you have come here and you're in that place today. But can I encourage you with all your questions, there are two things you can do. One is to just be a skeptic and to say there's no way this can be true and you kind of stuff your hope down and I know this world is not all it should be. I know I'm not the person that I want to be but there's no way that God could be the person he says he is. And you can come and you can just be skeptical. Try not to have that way of thinking. Try and be like Mary, who's rational but also sincere. She's not skeptical, she's sincere. And she's saying, I've got questions and I want to have answers to my questions. If you're here this morning and you've got questions, please hang around. Please say, can I join a life group? Please ask the person that brought you and say, hey, what is this all about? There's no better time than Christmas or Easter to think this through rationally and sincerely. Be sincere with your questions because if you've got them, God is a God who answers questions. Mary said had all sorts of questions going on, but she is a picture of what not yet Christians, but also Christians, how we are to behave. All our questions about the way that God is leading us at this time. All our questions about our marriage and relationships and our future and things that confuse us. There's always a choice to ignore them or to process them before the cross. And Mary here is struggling and wrestling, but she's bringing her doubts to God because God cares for her. So she's rational. She's also sincere. Verse 38 She's also someone who submits to God's will. Rational, sincere, and then thirdly, submission. Verse 38. She says these wonderful words. I am the Lord's servant, or handmaiden you may have. I'm the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you said. Now you realize what she's saying, don't you? Here she is, a teenager, and she's just said to Gabriel, may it be as the Lord says. She's saying, I'm willing to be disgraced. I'm willing for people to laugh at me. I'm willing for people to talk behind their hand at me. She was living in a very traditional culture, you see, and she was also betrothed to a man, Joseph. We don't know yet, but actually an angel is going to be sent by God to speak to him so he won't divorce her, but divorce was on the cards. Rather, the engagement would be called off. If this happens... There's not going to be any joy in her life. She's going to be on the lip of poverty for all her days. She's going to be on the edge of society because people will be saying, you know what happened to Mary, don't you? She slept with someone else and they wouldn't understand the supernatural. She'd be ostracized from her family. She'd be ostracized from her friends and she would lose Joseph. But God in his grace sent an angelic messenger to Joseph so that didn't happen. In modern parlance, you'd be a single mum who would be unmarried and living on benefits all her life. And yet Mary said, struggling to understand, I'm the Lord's servant, may it be to you, may it be to me as you have said. She trusts God and takes God at his word. It's a, we're so familiar with it that we lose its force, I think. Have you been struck by its force? She's not filled with joy at this point. That comes later. At this point, she's simply saying, God, I cannot see the future, but I trust you. May it be to me as you have said. I'm going to give myself to you. 
It's only in verse 46 later on, in what is possibly the longest chapter in the whole Bible, Luke 1, that Mary says, now my heart can rejoice. My spirit doth rejoice, my soul magnifies the Lord. It's only when she goes to see Elizabeth that that happens, but right now she says, I can't see the future, but Lord, I trust you. I see I need to submit, I see you the Lord, and therefore I'm your servant. I trust you. I'm going to give myself to you. I'm going to submit to you because you are God and I am not. May it be as you have said. Do you see the stages that she's gone through to receive the gift? Very rarely do people see a supernatural revelation like the Apostle Paul to become Christians. Very often it's just like Mary. What do I mean? They think rationally. They come to God sincerely and then they submit to God's kingship and rule and care. That's how you become a Christian. If you want to become a Christian this morning, please speak to the person who brought you. But think rationally. Come to God sincerely. And then, and it takes decades, submit to God's loving rule again and again and again. That's what's true in my life. Again and again and again, you submit to God's loving rule. No blinding light rational, sincere submission. That's what it means to become a Christian. There's a man called John Patton. He was a missionary to a cannibalistic people in the South Hebrides. He uh, was 33 years old and within months, within about four months, he dug with his bare hands two graves by the side of the house that he also built with his own hands. The graves were for his wife and newly born child. They both died from the fever. The rest of his ministry, he remarried and spent 41 years with his second wife. And he labored tirelessly for the gospel, sharing it with this tribe who practiced uh, infanticide, who killed babies, who ate people whom they conquered. It was just terrible existence for him. And at the end of his life, he says this, Whatever trials have befallen me in my earthly pilgrimage, I have never had the trial of doubting that perhaps after all, Jesus has made some mistake. No, my blessed Lord Jesus makes no mistake. When we see all his meaning, we shall then understand. What now we can only trustfully believe that all is well, is best for us, best for the cause most dear, best for the good of others and the glory of God. John Patton had uh, learnt the hardest lesson of all. It's the lesson that Mary learnt when she was really young, when she was a teenager. It's the truth that she knew in this passage. Mary knew that God is God and he always does what he pleases, but he always works for good and for his glory. There are two lessons here as we wrap up. One is very simple. If you're not a Christian yet, and even if you are, is this the way you process things that God brings into your life? Do you think rationally rather than emotionally and flying off the handle? Do you think rationally and seriously and sincerely? Can I encourage you, if you're not a Christian, to bring your concerns and your queries and your questions to God and to process them in this way? That's almost like an elementary way to come to God. But here's here's the hardest level of all. 
It's there in Mary's words. Can we say this to God? Is there any aspects in our lives where we can't say this? This is an advanced lesson. Verse 38. I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. Friends, in what area of your life do you struggle to say that? Are you facing something really hard in a relationship? Are you facing something very difficult in finances? Are you facing something very, very difficult in uh, your, your marriage? One of the most uh, clear signs that you're maturing in your faith is that you can say to God, may it be to me, just as you have said. John Patton could say that. Mary could say that. But can you say that? Let's pray together. Father, all our days are in your hands. And yet the hardest sentence to say and truly mean is that the Lord gives and the Lord has taken away. Father, we recognize that you are good and faithful and yet for our good and growth and maturity, you lead us into desert places, you lead us into difficulty. Often you cause us to lose things so that we can see that you are our all in all and that, that you are good. And I thank you so much for reminding me again of Mary's maturity of faith. Even as a teenager, she could say, may it be to me as you have said, not knowing what was going to happen in the future, but she trusted you at the very beginning. Please, would you help us to grow in maturity and faith? Would you help us to grow in our trust and allegiance to you? Would you help me to have no areas in my heart that are off limits to you, so that I may say, may it be to me as you have said. Amen.